There's Bible verse I think about sometimes. Many times. It goes. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send? Who shall I send? And I will go for us. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed this series on Cain, Crestfallen, and Cursed. Even Cain can get a lot of blame and judgment historically, so I wanted to uh, zoom out and give them some grace and perspective. I, I find it fascinating how much learning and growth you can get out of digging in on such a small portion of Scripture, while at the same time seeming to find something new to meditate on every time I read it. I, I truly wonder what I will pick up every year I pass through the Bible. So, just like with Samson, there were a few threads and wrinkles that I, I didn't press on and it was bothering me. So I, I wanted to do another addendum, get a couple of topics that are thought-provoking to me at least, and I want to get them out in the ether. The first one is a new perspective to see on wants and needs. The second one is a real push outside of the biblical comfort zone. It's not for everyone, so that's why I'm putting it on here and not in the two main teachings. So take it or leave it. With that in mind, let's get into it. So according to the sages of the Midrash, there are four primal desires in the text. And yes, before I go any further, let me explain what the Midrash is, the Talmud, and the Second Temple Period writings, which I think is way better. Just kidding, that will take hours and hours. But didn't Inigo Montoya say this when he was trying to elaborate to the Dread Pirate Roberts about where Buttercup was? Yeah. Where's Buttercup? Let me explain. There is too much. Let me, sum up. Let, me uh, let me sum up on what they were doing. As one of my most beloved biblical historians, Michael Heiser, said, these, these sages, these like Jewish rabbis, these are guys who took the Bible very seriously, and they're thinking about it. So when there's a portion of Scripture that has a gap or it leaves something out, or you could go left or right with it, there's stories and theories and rabbit holes that are explored and written out by these guys— does that make sense? I'm barely getting into this study. So say anything I take with a grain of salt, as the comedian Theo Vaughn might say, I have no idea what I'm talking about, and I never have. So some or most of them can get absolutely outlandish, but it's not supposed to tell you what happened literally. The point of them is to tell you the meaning behind a story. It's not one or the other. Think of it like a, like a piano player and their two hands. If you play a tune with just your right hand, you're going to miss out on some of the experience. Typically, the right hand is the melody, and the left hand harmonizes that melody. So you can make out the tune, but the, the left hand adds color. So that's the point of these allegories, or, or what's, a, what's a better word? These metaphors, these fables, to punch up a static part of text. Like, here's an example. An annoying part of scripture that I just learned, and it was shown to me because I covered the Jonah story in my first attempt at making this podcast. And someone said, have you noticed at the end of Jonah 1, it's a male fish in Hebrew. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, they change it to a female fish. So, it had not occurred to me 
That had not occurred to us, dude. No, dude, that did not occur to me. Well, guess what? There's a Midrash story about what happened there. See, it's kind of like that. So I, I love it. It's really fun. Here's another real-life example. I got this from a Bay Ma podcast episode. Marty was teaching in a classroom, and he's teaching on the brutal story of Abraham and Isaac, and they're going up the mountain and the sacrifice, and it's all about Abraham's faith, right? Faith even to the point of death, sacrificing his one and only son, that sound familiar? Anybody? So he concluded the class and he said to the students, do you guys have any questions on this, you know, section of scripture? And one of the students said, yeah, I want to know why Isaac didn't come down the mountain with his father. Uh, what? The, the, the teacher didn't even know. So he looked back in the text of the Bible and you can definitely make the case that Isaac might not have come down the mountain with his father. You can see where Isaac's name is included in the group that goes up the mountain. Genesis 22, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And then for some reason, in the next chapter, Isaac is left out of that group that came down the mountain. Maybe. But if you put this story in your own mind with your own kids... I mean, dude, who can blame Isaac if he didn't want to come down the mountain with his dad? He just tried to kill him for crying out loud. So this could be some real deal daddy trauma going on here. So hopefully you've noticed from these podcasts and studies that there, there are no mistakes or missteps in these writings. If something is missing, then pay attention to it. Just meditate on it. And even the teacher hadn't noticed that before. So I, I think that's wild. So once again, question everything. It doesn't call your faith into question. It, it, it really strengthens it. So here's the, funny, here's the funniest part of that story. In the class, one of the girls had a very famous rabbi, Jewish rabbi teacher that was extremely well-versed in these Midrash writings. And the teacher knew that. So he's kind of looking at her and she can feel what he wants to say. So she says it. She says, do you want me to ask my dad if there's any stories of this part of the Bible? And he says, uh, yes, please. <laughs> so the girl texts her dad. He replies back with two different stories. He says, there's two elaborate stories on what happened with Isaac potentially not coming down the mountain. One of them says that Abraham actually went through with it. He did sacrifice Isaac, and Isaac rose from the dead three days later. And as they say in that episode, if you're a Jesus follower, I hope that analogy didn't miss on you. The other one says he went to live with Ishmael, his older first, you know, the half-brother, and cool out for a little while. And, and that is a full amazing story. And you can see so many examples in the Bible that seem to point that way in that story. That's a whole other podcast. But I thought that is a great example of what these writings are. They are not canonized, so to speak. I hate that topic. But the point is that you can learn many, many things from these writings that will blow your mind. And when you see people like Paul and Peter and Jude quoting them in their writings in the Bible, ruh roh shaggy. Ruh roh raggy. All right. Anyways, back on track. Like I said initially, there are four primal desires mentioned in the text, according to these sages of the Midrash, and they are as follow. The desire, the teshuka in Hebrew, of Eve for Adam, the desire of Eve for Adam, the desire of rain for land, the desire of God for humanity, and finally, the desire of sin for Cain. They call it the evil inclination instead of sin, and I, I might elaborate on that, I might not, I as I'm saying this, I haven't decided yet. Did anything pop out to you as weird on those things that I just said? 
they seem backwards, don't they? I mean, does rain desire the land? Wouldn't you say it the other way around? That's the point of this topic. I want you to see this differently. There is another angle. Also on the God's desire for humanity. Hold on, Tyler. You said in the last episode that God needs nothing. He is God Almighty. You said that. Yes, I did. So I am saying here that this teshuka, this desire, is one that might not have a need associated with it. It's something better. It is ironically the opposite, actually. So how about this? Think of, uh, think of the sense of fullness, being full. Think of a glass that is half full of water. It's not the desire of the half-empty glass to be full, but the desire of a full glass to overflow. That's what I'm talking about. One rabbi said it like this. It's more, more than the calf wants to suckle, the mother wants to nurse. See that? It's like teaching. When someone is so passionate about a topic and has the knowledge, sometimes they can't help but overflow this information. They can't wait to get it out into the world. They have to teach this. And we have all met those wonderful teachers that changed our lives. And for some reason, it's one or two in your whole lifetime. Shout out to Dr. Brown in my high school. All right, let's push into these examples, starting with the Almighty. God is love. Am I right, John? Okay, God loves, but it's not because he's clingy. He's not needy. He's full. He's full of love and he wants to share it. So to that end, he created the world because the world required it. Another one is the rain example. Like I said, this one makes way more sense to us in a typical setting. That being that the land needs water. It's parched and needs rain, right? But but it is the rain that gets the joy. It experiences that teshuka for the land. The rain wants to give the land what it is full of. The reason that rain is so wonderful in its ability to satisfy the land, it can nourish and share itself with the land, like the nursing mother. If there is no land to water, then the rain is frustrated. That's pretty cool, huh? Here's another one. I covered this in in a previous episode. I think I did this in the last part of Samson. It was the need of man for completeness with woman. In other words, the desire of the feminine for the masculine. It's comparable to a person who has lost something. They go searching for it. And when Adam wakes up from his deep sleep and sees woman, he says to God, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. Now let's look from the female, the feminine perspective. They are whole. They're not missing anything. (laughs) Their completeness is what they want to give. Their fullness is a gift to the masculine, just like the rain. This mysterious life-giving force out of grace. So let's finally take the posture into our story of Cain. I think you will see where I'm going now that I've set the table. This inclination, it has it out for you, Cain. It wants you like God and the rain and the woman. This benevolent force that is full, wants to get to you, Cain. That seems so paradoxical to me, and I imagine you as well. Why do they call it evil? Let's jump back real quick to frame this again. Genesis 3.16, God talking to Eve, quote, your teshuka is unto your husband, yet he can rule over you, end quote. Okay, so let's jump that same structure for Cain about his evil inclination. It's teshuka is unto you, yet you can rule over it. Again, that's why I don't like seeing the word evil there. It's more like a life force here. The force that is full and overflowing is seeking to share itself with you, Cain. So to bring it home on that one, 
it goes back to the passions and desires and the chutzpah. A man with no passion builds no home and never marries. He builds nothing to be desired himself. So passions are not evil in a vacuum, but as David Foreman says in the book, they do constitute a powerful, inherently benign life force whose only desire, as it were, is to establish a relationship with you. They want to overflow, to give of themselves to you. But the power of these passions is awesome. An awesome power left raw and undirected can indeed lead to great evil. And brother, amen to that, if you've ever studied history. That's a wrap on that topic. All right, I should end the podcast here. I can't help myself but blur the lines, and this is where I'm going. So if you want to eject the tape right now, I'm going to go into a fun little wormhole that will probably only be interesting to about 10% of my audience, but why not? And that being the subject of the mark of Cain. God marks Cain with something as he sends him out east into the wilderness, right? Where Cain apparently knows that someone or something is out there to kill him. Again, you're going to have to look into that topic yourself. You'll have fun. With that warning, let's get into this and wrap up on this topic. Genesis 4, quote, And Cain said to God, My sin is greater than I can bear. Anyone who finds me will kill me. And God replied to him, All right, anyone who kills Cain will be avenged sevenfold. And God placed a mark, a sign, an oath, a distinguishing mark, a token upon Cain so that all who found him would not kill him, end quote. The great Rashi says that he thinks Cain is worried about animals killing him when he says that. I, little old Tyler Parker doesn't agree with that, but that's fine. Who the heck am I? But Cain wasn't afraid of animals before, so why is he now petrified? But I'd like to focus more on the sevenfold thought here. Seven is a huge Hebrew number. If you've ever dug into this sevenfold vengeance here, I would bet it was taught to you that this sevenfold vengeance is dished out to anyone who would dare kill Cain. I don't really love this thought, and I bet if I were Cain, I could not care less what happens to my killer because, spoiler alert, I'll be dead. I mean, Abel, did Abel get sevenfold treatment? No. So why does Cain? He's the murderer, for crying out loud. And what's the worst sentence the killer of Cain can get? But the death sentence. But, but that's not sevenfold. That's just plain Jane quid pro quo, you know, tit for tat. Quid pro quo. I tell you things, you tell me things. Quid pro quo. Yes or no. But if, if we keep reading the text in Genesis, imagine that, it will help us. So right after that portion of scripture I just read comes a genealogy out of nowhere. Who had whose kids, how long they lived, blah, blah, blah. Then it goes into detail in one specific line and what they did for a living even. Then suddenly there's a verbatim sevenfold quote again, a father talking to his wives and saying, you know, gather around, gather around kids and wives. I got a tale of vengeance to tell you. And I'll tell you what, if you've been counting the lines of birth and who had who, guess what generation removed from Cain? We are in this story with this guy. That's right. The seventh generation. So maybe just maybe this sevenfold vengeance wasn't referring to the severity of the punishment of anyone who would kill Cain. But maybe it was talking about the time at which the vengeance would occur. Oh, keep going. Let's keep going. Okay, it gets weirder. In that genealogy I mentioned, if you are following along, you will see that we are intro to a man named Lamech. Like I said, he's got two wives, he's got four kids, three boys and a girl. Boys are 
uh, Jabal or Javal, Jubal, and Tubal came. The girl is Naama. Jabal becomes the father of all shepherds and twin tent dwellers. Jubal becomes the father of harps and cymbals, aka, you know, musical instruments. So that's pretty cool. And then Tubal came and he invents ironworks. He's the first one to make metal weapons. So, so to quote the scripture on this huddle up, he calls his brides, tells them this horrible story, and he says, quote, Listen to my voice, wives of Lemek. Hearken to my word. I might try that with my wife. Let's see how that works. What? All right. Hearken to my words, for I have killed a man to my injury and a child to my wound. Yes, sevenfold was the vengeance of Cain and Lamech 77. End quote. That's Genesis 4.23. So, dude, this is hard to understand, man. Killing a man and a child, and that harkens back to his ancestor's punishment? Well, the sages sat down and they thought on this one as well, and they came up with a parable on this. And it leads to a callback on how Cain died. Remember my reference to the Abraham and Isaac story? Th this is how the Midrash is. It's fun. Again, I'm barely getting into this. This is kind of a Brothers Grimm type work here. Thank Hansel and Gretel vibe. All right, here it is. Here's the story they came up with. Lamech was the seventh generation descendant of Cain. He was blind. And he would go out hunting with his son, who was Tubal Cain. His son, Tubal Cain, would lead him by hand. And when he would see an animal, he would inform his father, who would then proceed to try and kill it. One day, Tubal Cain cried out to his dad, I see something like an animal over there. Lamech pulled back on his bow and shot. The child peered from afar at the dead body and said to Lamech, What we killed bears the figure of a man, but it has a horn protruding from its forehead. Lamech then exclaimed in anguish, Woe is me, woe unto me. It is my ancestor Cain. And he clapped his hands together in grief. You know, like you do when you, you punch your own leg, slap yourself in disgust. And in doing so, he unintentionally struck his child, Tubal Cain, and killed him too. End quote. That's the story. <laughs> so what the heck is going on here? That's the story they concocted to explain this and connect the dots. We, we got a hunt going on. A blind hunter who gets led around by his son to tell him when he sees something and where to aim. We got an elderly old man creeping around the woods like Bigfoot. I guess he's basically a unicorn. And that is old man Cain doing what Cain was cursed to do. And what's that? Wander aimlessly across the land. That part checks out, I guess. But if you go back to the story that Lamech said to his wives, it seems more somber now. It seems sadder. He's saying that the man that he, Lamech, killed to his injury was none other than Cain. And the child he struck to his wound was his poor son, Tubal Cain. So their position here is what we talked about with the timing of the punishment. It's not the punishment of Cain's murderer and the severity of that crime. It's the sevenfold lapse in time of the generations. Okay, like I said, to be honest, what about the unicorn thing? Why a horn on his forehead? Well, let's go one more time back to the story of Adam and Eve. Last time. I think the link here, the callback, is the thought we had with the snake talking to Eve, thinking like an animal, 
a primal serpent, the walking, talking, brilliant beast trying to get Eve to listen to her gut. Get off of your high horse of human intelligence, Eve, when Eve should have done the opposite. She should have risen above her desires to think critically, to master them. And here we are so many generations later and the war wages on. The battle within is alive and well. How people relate and wrestle with their passions and how to harness them. Cain has kept going in the wrong direction, it seems. He has literally become more animal-like in this tale, continuing down the path of losing the internal war with passions and desires and submitting to them, not unleashing them. So the Midrash story is talking about the mark here. It's not the protection from anyone seeking to hurt him, nor is it a cosmic armor to convince the animals that Cain was a human to be feared. It's just simply a horn. That's the meaning of their story. The same means of protection as a ram or a rhino or an elk or a moose. So the turning of the knife here in this story on the level of, you know, a Joseph Heller novel or Vonnegut or Shakespeare is that the horn given as protection was the calling card for his demise. Tubal Cain thought his great-great-great-grandfather was an animal. Cain's caught in no man's land, and it finally cost him in God's perfect timing. And it comes from probably the worst hunting duo of all time. I mean, talk about the blind leading the blind here. Lamech and Tubal Cain, you got a, a child calling out the coordinates of a target to a man that can't see anything. Can you see that? It's hilarious. Some kid spinning an old man 30 degrees east, lining him up and telling him to fire. What, what could possibly go wrong? So that point, I think, is this. Here we are, seven generations from Cain. It appears nothing's changed. It's just the stakes are so much higher. The echoes of the forbidden fruit are still hitting. The power of the snake, left to its own, consistently overwhelms its owner. We have officially spun out of control. The children of Lamech will be the last descendants of Cain that the world will ever know. They're about to be swept away in another terrible story, which is right around the corner. The ultimate mass destruction of the entire human race that somehow became a sweet Sunday school story because of a rainbow, I guess. But it's catastrophic. So listen to this. Right after this part of Genesis, with the pronouncement of the 77-fold vengeance, we have a second series of generations again. Family lineage. This one begins with the third son born to Eve. Anyone know his name? Biblical history? His name is Seth. And Eve proclaims Seth as her replacement for her murdered son, Abel. And the text introduces this line like this. These are the generations of Adam. A.K.A. here is the new path forward. This is the way home starting now. And it is. Abel is dead. Cain is dead. And his children are about to be wiped out in the flood after seven generations. And then the descendants of Seth have a haunting resemblance to the descendants of Cain. Cain had Methuselah and Seth had Methuselah. Cain had Chanak and Seth had one with the exact same name. Heck, Seth's first son was named Enosh, which means guess what? Man. That word is another word for man in Hebrew. <laughs> the second man, the second Adomah. Just for fun, the seventh generation of Enosh, the second man, is a child that happens to have the name of, drumroll please, Lamech. Come on, dude. And this second Lamech, guess how long he lives? He lives to the age of 777 years old. You see that, man? Do you feel that? 
That is scripture talking to you. This is how God speaks to us. He can't hug us. We can't see him, but we can ponder his words and connect. The Bible is amazing. You should read the Bible. So if you really want to put a bow on this, think like this with the lines of the Adam figure, the Adam figures, Adam one and Adam two, AKA Enosh, they both come to a son named Lamech. And as the first Lamech gets a son, calls him Tubal Cain, he partners with him in the destruction of life. However, the second Lamech from the second Adam gets a son who will save the human race and perpetuate life. And that son was called Noah. You know why his name's Noah? Because, quote, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and named him Noah, which means rest, saying out of the ground that the Lord had cursed, this, this one shall bring us relief, relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And it looks like it's right on time because I see a cloud coming over the horizon. I am Tyler Parker and Sunday School is out.